The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. You're listening to Voices of Your Village. This is episode number 56. Holy moly, guys, I'm so, so jazzed for this episode. Today I get to share my mentor in sleep with you. When I was finishing up my master's, I found her and I wanted to work at the organization she was working at. And just about a couple months before I finished my master's, it closed down overnight to everybody's surprise, including hers. And so I didn't get that opportunity, but I wrote her a really kind of creepy love letter and maybe a little stalkerish and confessed my love for the work that she was doing and just asked her how I could learn from her. Then she spent the next couple of years, every presentation she gave, I was there. She taught me a lot about sleep science and I connected with her because she has a background in child development and that's something that isn't super common in sleep consulting. It's something that sets us apart. And I think it's crucial to have that because so much of sleep is related to development. And I found that in her and she just taught me so stinking much. And so she joined us today to talk about naps and nap transition, when to move from three naps to two nap to one nap and how to do that, all that jazz. If you're tuning in and you're like, oh man, I want all of this and I don't have time to write it down or any of that, then go onto the snoozy shop on our website and you can snag the nap schedules, the sample sleep schedules. It'll outline what nap schedules should look like at different ages and stages. And then you can just tweak the times to align with your family unit. Uh, I also have a video that talks all about like what you're going to get and how to use it. But you can snag that from the snoozy shop on our website at seedandso.org. All right, guys, enjoy Teresa Stewart. I'm so, so jazzed that I get to share her with you today. Welcome to Voices of Your Village, a place where parents, caregivers, teachers, and experts come to support one another on this wild ride of raising tiny humans. We combine decades of experience with the latest research to create the modern parenting village. Let's dive into honest conversation about real parenting challenges so it doesn't have to be this hard. I'm your host, sleep consultant, child development specialist, and passionate feminist, Alyssa Blass Campbell. Hey everyone, welcome to Voices of Your Village. I'm super stoked today because I get to bring you my mentor in sleep. I wrote Teresa a love letter, a love email really, uh, <laughs> about five years ago now, which is crazy. And I had been sleep consulting and was pretty new to the Boston area when I found, which 
what is now kind of an unfortunate name, but it was called ISIS Parenting and was like, oh, that's where I want to work. That's what I want to do. I want to support parents and, and work there. And Teresa was running the sleep program. And so I'd been following along and then overnight it like shut down and <laughs> uh, all my dreams were shattered. And I was like, well, I don't know what I'm going to do now. Um, and so then I just stalked Teresa as she started her own business and wrote her a love letter. And she so kindly has mentored me in this sleep journey as I as it's unfolded and as I got to start my own business doing this and is like the true embodiment of community over competition. And we have just shared values and goals here in this journey. And today she's joining me to talk about naps. Hey, Teresa. Hi, Alyssa. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Thanks, thanks for, for the very sweet introduction. Yeah. <laughs> thanks for being here. Thanks for being my wife. Uh, can, <laughs> gotcha. you, can you tell our listeners a bit about your background and kind of how you got here? Yeah, thanks for asking. Um, so first, it's so interesting that you mentioned ISIS Parenting because uh, it's almost five years to the day that the company closed. Uh, so January is always a time of reflection for me for a lot of reasons. Um, so my professional background, I have two master's degrees. I hold one in child development. And the second one is in maternal and child health. Uh, so I have an MPH, maternal and child health. And as long as I can remember, um, really back to childhood, I've always been really passionate about supporting children and families and kind of knew at a very early age that it takes a lot uh, to raise children. I'm the oldest of four, <laughs> so that might have a role in that perspective. Um, but I initially was focused on a lot of policy and advocacy work. Um, after I got done with both of my grad programs, I worked for um, an organization in Pennsylvania called Community Services for Children, uh, which was actually the overseeing body for Early Head Start and Head Start. And I did a lot of advocacy policy writing um, there. I loved the job and then became a mom and quickly found out that despite my many years of being a nanny, both of my grad degrees, um, all the work that I was doing professionally, um, that it was really different and hard uh, when it's your own baby. And my daughter is now 12 and I love her dearly, uh, but she has always been um, a higher needs kiddo. And, you know, high needs is a term from Dr. Sears. Maybe some people listening to this resonate with high needs. Um, high needs kids tend to need a little bit more of everything, except, interestingly, sleep. Uh, high needs kids tend to need less sleep and more sleep pressure. And we'll talk more, I'm sure, about what sleep pressure is. Um, but my journey of becoming a mom was a hard one. And just really started to feel... Um, alone and unsupported and went through some pretty hard things that I never wanted any other parent to go through. So becoming a parent really kind of changed the path of my career. And I decided instead of being involved at the policy and advocacy level to be more involved in like direct education and support. So went back to work at the Head Start program when my daughter was six weeks, only six weeks old. That's all the maternity leave I had and it was unpaid. And I stayed there till she was three months and then quit that job. And then when she was about six months old, I found the company that you mentioned, um, Isis Parenting. 
um, that was in the Boston area, and they were hiring for part-time uh, instructors at night uh, teaching newborn care classes. So it started there very part-time, but in the course of almost eight years, um, taught all sorts of classes, prenatal, postpartum, child development, uh, parenting classes, uh, over solid sleep program, as you mentioned, safety program, wellness program. Um, the company was growing, the company was expanding. We had open centers in Texas and Georgia, and then the company closed. <laughs> <laughs> Literally overnight. <laughs> and I didn't know what I was going to do. Um, I only knew that being on unemployment and getting 60% of my paycheck was not sustainable <laughs> for my family. And a lot of clients that I had worked with at um, Exit Parenting just organically started to reach out to me and saying, hey, are you still sleep consulting? We still need help. Never intended to be an entrepreneur, never intended to own my own practice, um, but in the last five years, it has just blossomed into that. Um, so I uh, support families one-on-one. -on -one. I run a lot of online groups. Um, I do a lot of lecturing uh, for professionals, parents. Um, I speak at a lot of different conferences. And um, my overall goal is to support, to validate, to empower, empower parents, um, never judge. Um, and I try to get the message out that sleep is so much more than sleep training. I try not to use that term. I don't like that term. Um, and that really, when a parent says, my child isn't sleeping, that's just the tip of the iceberg. And there is so much to explore underneath that iceberg. Yeah, no, and that's what I feel so blessed to have been able to learn from you. And so today, when we dive into naps, I turn to you for this because I learned so much about sleep pressure, which now is literally like 90% of the consultations I do come back to a root <laughs> of sleep pressure. And yeah. naps play such a huge role in that. And so let's dive in. Yeah. Uh, so first and foremost, the one of the most frequent questions that I got when I put this out there was, when do we even expect kiddos to be on a nap schedule? Mm -hmm. Great question. Um, so before I answer that, I'll just uh, quickly define two terms that I'm going to use so people know what I'm talking about. <laughs> uh, so um, in sleep biology, there are two sleep drives in the human body that work together, hopefully, uh, to regulate sleep. So we have our circadian rhythm, uh, which is really the driving force for nighttime sleep. And then we have this elusive sleep pressure um, <laughs> that plays a role in both daytime sleep and nighttime sleep. Um, for people whose babies are younger than three months old, their circadian rhythm has not yet matured and developed and really doesn't play a big uh, role in sleep. So for anybody listening who has a baby younger than three months old, um, the biggest thing you want to do is actually limit how much the sleep pressure builds. Um, so offer your baby the opportunity to nap every 90 minutes, two hours max. Um, that's my number one advice for people with kiddos younger than three months old. Um, if they're awake too long, the whole 24-hour cycle of sleep is probably going to be harder. Harder to soothe, harder to stay asleep, harder to initiate sleep. Um, then what happens somewhere between three and a half and five and a half months old is what a lot of blogs and books and social media refer to as the four-month sleep regression. Uh, which I know Alyssa we talked about you know this terminology before and from a developmental point of view I, I don't like the regression term uh, because it's not a regression it's a state of maturation 
it's the baby's circadian rhythm really maturing and developing for the first time. Um, it feels like a regression because everything you've known about your newborn sleep patterns are going to change. The earlier parents can get on board with the fact that sleep is going to change frequently in the first three years of life, um, the easier it'll be for parents to navigate the change. Um, resisting change when it comes to developing children is never a good idea. <laughs> um, so the earliest that some babies might really take on, um, you know, a nap schedule is around four months old. Some babies do it naturally. Some need a whole lot of help. Some are not ready for a more formal nap schedule until closer to six months old. I think that that expectation is, is huge, right? Like when in our work and emotional development, so much of our work is talking about expectations. In fact, in our research, uh, there, one of the kiddos was saying, that wasn't my expectation. And I was like, oh man, I love that because that's so appropriate for how we feel. So, so often we're having a hard feeling because we expected something different. And now we have to navigate that feeling transition. And yep. So that's, I, I love that for setting parents up for what to expect and to know that it's okay if your kid isn't on a schedule in these first few months. We don't expect that. Um, and Absolutely. if that is your expectation, you're going to spend a lot of time in this hamster wheel <laughs> running around looking for that schedule that won't be there for a while. With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, motion sounds something like this. Kizik helps you experience the magic of motion. With over 200 patents and easy on, easy off technology, you'll never have to touch your shoes again. There are hundreds of styles and colors, plus a squish like nothing you've ever felt. For a limited time, get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Oh, hey, everybody. It's us, Blair and Molly, your old pals from Toddler Purgatory, two moms who are also actors, who are also creative beings, who sometimes feel stuck. And now we're back with a whole new podcast about unsticking it, launching in January. What happens when life gets in the way of our creativity instead of nourishing it? We talk to all sorts of guests about how to break through the mucky, gluey, sticky wall that can get between you and your creativity. We hear about their journeys, their successes, their challenges, and even their bougie coffee shop orders. So join us, won't you, as we deep dive into how to unstick ourselves from the life gunk that can get in the way of our creative freedom. Get out of there, life gunk. Let us help you get back to your best creative self. Look for Unsticking It with Blair and Molly. Wherever you listen to podcasts starting in January, Unsticking It with Blair and Molly. Because sometimes life sucks. Unsticking it. Okay, so our next question is, after that four and a half months or whatever, when we're starting on a nap schedule, how many naps are we talking? And at what point does that kind of change? Can you walk us through like the nap transition? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so I surveyed some of my clients last night uh, just to mm -hmm. kind of get their on, um, you know, where they were with different nap transitions and especially what they remembered about the, you know, first significant nap transition of three to two. Um, and most people, this question elicited so much stress <laughs> as they were thinking back on nap time transitions. So um, I think naps are really hard for quite a while for most families. Um, you know, again, going back to what are the expectations, what are they hearing? 
um, you know, who was telling them what. Um, so the youngest babies, when we want them to nap roughly every 90 to 120 minutes, that's probably five, maybe six naps a day, and they're probably short naps. Um, when the circadian rhythm starts to develop, um, you know, that four-month quote-unquote sleep progression, um, now we're usually trying to work towards a consistent four. Some babies are ready for three naps. Um, some babies aren't ready for three naps until five and a half, six months old. Um, by six months old, I would say most babies should definitely be on three naps. Um, so what happens when the circadian rhythm develops and matures is that it starts to need more sleep pressure. So sleep pressure is a sensation of being tired. And if you don't start to space your naps differently, so if you get stuck in that newborn mindset of my baby has to go down every 90 minutes and you have a six month old, you're probably having a baby who's up every two to three hours at night. And they're up because the sleep pressure is inhibiting the circadian rhythm from getting into a deep sleep cycle. So somewhere between four and six months old, as we start to transition to a three nap pattern, all of this is rough guidelines. Every baby is a little bit different, um, but typically speaking, you're looking for nap one to start about two hours after the babies wake up in the morning and aiming for it to be at least an hour. Now I say at least an hour, but most people listening are probably gonna say, but my baby wakes up every 30 to 40 minutes. <laughs> and that's because that is a natural point in a daytime sleep cycle when baby goes from one cycle into the next, they wake, they're biologically supposed to wake, they check their environment, they probably need soothing at this young age. Maybe they need to be nursed or bottle fed back to sleep. Maybe they need to be rocked. Maybe they wanna sleep in your arms. And all of that is okay. Um, but what you can start to do between four and six months old is shape the sleep so that if the baby wakes before an hour for nap one, you're helping the baby know and learn to go back to sleep. Um, so nap one, um, roughly two hours after wake up and lasting for at least an hour. Um, am I answering your question so far yeah. or did I get off topic? No, yeah, you're okay. <laughs> uh, Nap one tends to be the first nap to mature for most babies. As the day goes on and as sleep pressure builds, naps get harder. Um, so a lot of families I work with are seeing some really great success with nap one, but still feel very frustrated that nap two and three are short. And I always have to bring them back to biologically what's going on and these expectations. Um, I think sometimes as parents, we get so caught up in, well, what's gonna come next that we don't celebrate what's already happening. Um, so the fact that a baby somewhere between four and six months old is starting to take an hour long first nap of the day is wonderful. When they're ready, <laughs> the second nap will start to become longer. Um, now in most babies, um, I try to get the second nap to be the longest of the day. And this is really in preparation for the dropping of the third nap between six and nine months. Awesome. So when you're looking at that uh, second nap, how long is your wake period between the first nap and the second nap? Great question. And it does really depend on the baby. Um, so an overall goal um, in terms of sleep pressure as your baby gets older is um, once they start to drop naps, you want to start to increase their periods of wakefulness a little bit more each time as the day goes on. So capping that first nap so they're only awake about two hours before the first nap and then awake longer before nap number two. 
for some babies, depending on the age and a lot of different factors, um, that might just be two and a half hours. For some babies, it might be three. Um, very rarely, some babies might go over that three hour mark. Um, but once they're around six, seven, eight months old, that's when hopefully your first nap is stabilized at at least an hour. So now you can work on the second nap being about an hour and a half to two hours. And then that third nap of the day would fall when? Yeah, so the third nap of the day, I think, is the one that causes most parents stress. <laughs> um, it's definitely the hardest nap. You know, this is, for most babies, the witching hour. Uh, for many families, this is just a time of transition. Um, you know, one or both parents uh, coming home from work. Um, a lot of babies coming home from childcare or a nanny or a grandma. Um, you know, some babies will fall asleep in the car. Other babies scream in the car because they absolutely <laughs> hate the car seat. And then parents are just so stressed. You know, maybe there's older siblings that you're trying to do. Like dinner and homework and bath, like evenings just tend to be hard, I think, on most families in our current society. Um, and nap three, when I quickly surveyed some of my clients last night, is definitely the pain point. Um, one mom even said, um, so her baby's older now, her baby is about 13 months, but she was remembering back to the transition from three to two when her daughter was around eight months old. And she said that when she transitioned to two naps, was when uh, mom really started feeling like she had a life again mm -hmm. um, because she could now plan her day because that third nap is like hit or miss sometimes and it's mm -hmm. just so stressful. Um, so some babies will naturally drop nap three. Other babies will keep three naps, but you get to a point where you realize it's actually causing them to wake more at night. If your baby is nine months old, taking three naps and meeting your nighttime goals, and keep three naps a little bit longer. I never rush the transition from naps. But if your baby is somewhere between six and nine months old, taking three naps a day, um, but then really fighting bedtime, so taking longer than 20 minutes to fall asleep at that time, and or waking up in the first six hours of the night, those are two biological signs that they're ready to drop the third nap. Uh, so somewhere between six and nine months old for most babies. Yeah, I love that. Um, again, I think expectation is just so huge to know really what to expect and when it's coming. I, I also have just told parents for that third nap, it doesn't matter where they sleep. It doesn't matter if they're in your arms. It doesn't matter if they're in a car seat or a carrier or a stroller or whatever, like just getting a little snooze. And it doesn't have to be, in fact, I think it often shouldn't be like an hour long snooze, uh -huh. just something yep. to get them to bedtime. Yeah, absolutely. Any, anything goes for that third nap. And, um, you know, just as you said, it shouldn't be long. So for most babies, that third nap, um, no more than a half hour. Mm -hmm. Love that. So we went through like when to go from three to two to one. Uh, but mm -hmm. well, actually, we didn't go to how, when to go down to like one nap. So if say they're at yeah. two naps, they've kicked that third nap. When do you move to one nap? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. So, you know, as I was sharing from one of my clients, like two naps usually feels like the land of, okay, I can do this. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, everything's getting a little bit more consistent. I have time in between naps to, you know, have a life, do things with my, my baby. Um, so maintain two naps as long as it's working. Some babies very rarely are ready for one nap before age one, um, but most I would say 99% of them are not. <laughs> um, so I tend to see somewhere between a year and 18 months old for the transition to a single nap. 
um, but I will share, and um, Alyssa, maybe you witnessed this yourself. Um, the baby's usually transitioning 12, 13, 14 months is often not their biological choice, um, but more the constraints and requests of a caregiver situation. Mm -hmm. um, so unfortunately, in a lot of childcare centers, the transition to the toddler room happens um, around well, not unfortunate that they're going to the toddler room, right. but unfortunately, <laughs> the transition to the toddler room is the request to nap on a mat and to drop down to one nap. Mm -hmm. um, and once your kiddo is on a single nap pattern, um, sleep pressure really starts to play a role. And you want to think of sleep pressure as the way that you're going to charge their battery to sleep at night. So if you have a toddler on a single nap, you look at before nap and after nap. And ideally, the period of wakefulness is longer post-nap than pre-nap. And what happens in a lot of caregiver situations is they're up longer before the nap than after. So yeah. they might take a really nice nap, but then they're not falling asleep at that time, or they're up a lot at night because that sleep pressure is imbalanced. Right. Well, and I will say from the like childcare perspective, because I taught infant toddler for a while and sleep is a pain because we, especially in that like 12 to 18 month range where not all of your kids had the same birthday. And there were mm -hmm. definitely months where I felt like I just had a nap room because I would have some mm -hmm. kids on two naps and some kids on one nap. And so it was like, all right, morning nap for this kid. And then mm -hmm. Once that kid wakes up, this kid goes down and, 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 and it's wild for a few months, yeah. but it's, it's temporary. Yeah. And so I think for childcare providers who are tuning in to, or folks who have an older kiddo who's on one nap, it is mm -hmm. a pain in the butt to feel like you are just like a nap factory, but it's temporary mm -hmm. and it will save your overnights. And Absolutely. also from childcare, one of the biggest pushbacks I get is pulling this nap earlier. But if we think about it, like a lot of these kiddos are going down around one in childcare. And if that kid's mm -hmm. going up at 6 a.m., that's a seven mm -hmm. hour awake period. Say they sleep till three and we want them to go to bed like four hours later. No way, dude. And that is why I think we end up with a lot of parents, especially in preschool, who are like, please don't let my kid nap at school. I would say the mm -hmm. same thing if you're doing a one o'clock nap. Please don't let my kid nap at school, even though they probably still need a nap. We just got to pull these yeah. earlier. And Absolutely. Uh, I have done it personally as like a first lunch, second lunch. So I'll do first mm -hmm. lunch at like 10 45, 11 o'clock, nap, nap between 11 and 11 for a couple hours. Mm -hmm. And then second lunch when they wake up and they don't yeah. know. The difference they don't know that like are socially constructed we usually have one yep. big lunch <laughs> uh, and, and it's just like a mind shift though for us absolutely and that's a really good point that you just made there too about you know shifting meal times because even some families I work with who um, you know one or both parents are home with the child or they have a nanny at home and they have the flexibility with a nap they, they often do get really hung up around the social construct of lunchtime mm -hmm. um, so, you know, sometimes we talk about, okay, it might be a really small lunch earlier than you would expect, a nap and then a big snack, um, or it might be a snack, then a nap, and then a bigger lunch a little bit later. Um, and if you look at cultures across the world, you know, there's plenty of European cultures who do not eat lunch at noon. Right. <laughs> um, so that there are ways, um, but, you know, something you were just talking about, Alyssa, that I love, and I am so happy to know you and have connected with you around this. Um, is your willingness to be flexible in that group childcare setting. Um, it's been many, many years since I worked in a childcare center and I you know, fully emphasize and understand that juggling the needs of multiple kids 
but I do wish more care providers could be flexible. And I know there's state regulations and laws and staffing and breaks and all of these, you know, very important logistics that come into play. Um, but I also think, unfortunately, a lot of early childhood educators and providers don't know about sleep. They were never educated on it. And I mean, even in my two grad degrees, I learned nothing about sleep when I learned about child development. I learned nothing about sleep when I got my master's in um, maternal child health. Like the sleep education is everything that I pursued on my own. Um, it wasn't built into my, my programs of you know education. So we just need to get this knowledge out there. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And on that note, I think it's also important to note one of my good friends is a pediatrician and she was like, will you guys stop putting things on our plate that are not in our wheelhouse? Yeah. And one of the things she was talking about here was sleep, where she, she yeah. was like, I'm not trained in sleep. This isn't something that I have studied. And, uh, and it's, but it is often the place that a parent turns to for sleep support. Mm -hmm. And I'm really hoping that we can move in a direction of having sleep consultants more readily available in the same way that you don't turn to a pediatrician for lactation support. Right. And, and sort of kind of mainstreaming that a bit. Thanks for noting that. I also did not learn any sleep science or any of it out, uh, in my degree program. It was all outside yeah. of that. Um, yep. Yeah, I think that's huge. And I love working with childcare centers. A lot of the consultations that we do, we end up working with the childcare teachers mm -hmm. as well because it is yeah. a, it, it takes a village and it's such a team sport here. If we're gonna have sleep pressure play a role. Yeah, absolutely. So how do you move from three to two to one naps? <laughs> <laughs> uh, in most cases, a little painfully. <laughs> <laughs> So, so what you want to keep in mind is when you're transitioning naps, you're talking about increasing sleep pressure. And when you're increasing sleep pressure, you are causing a baby, a toddler, a preschooler um, to feel more tired than they are accustomed to. And any of us, when tired, <laughs> are going to have a tougher time regulating emotions. So often when we start a transition, um, you know, families will say, uh, no, they're not ready. Um, they're crying more. They're tantruming more. They're so tired. Um, I have to go back to the old schedule. Um, but then reverting back to the old schedule still leads to the bedtime resistance and or the wake-ups overnight. So the first thing I would say, again, going back to expectations, um, with nap transitions in most cases, it's going to get harder before it comes together. Um, so you kind of have to balance the cues of your child when they're tired um, with the clock. And it can take anywhere from seven to 21 days to make a transition. Um, the hardest transition that usually takes closer to the full 21 days is the two to one nap transition. Um, and during the transition, whether it's three to two or two to one, you may be going back and forth where some days they have three naps, some days they have two. Some days they have two naps, some days they have one. Um, and sometimes, depending on what is going on in a child care caregiver situation, um, maybe during the week, you know, your 14-month-old takes one nap a day, but on the weekend, you still do two naps. Um, it's okay for things to flex. Um, again, going back to two things, is your child falling asleep within 20 minutes at bedtime, and are they consolidating the first part of their night, the deepest sleep? Um, and if yes, then it's okay if naps are changing day to day. Um, and if no, they're not doing those things, that's an indicator that you want to look at sleep pressure. Um, 
So, you know, as I was talking about a little bit before, some babies will naturally transition, like they'll just all of a sudden drop nap three because nap two got much longer and parents are realizing that there isn't any way to fit in nap three because now they're already at bedtime and others may have to actively work on the spacing. I love that. And I have, I agree that like, A, it can go back and forth and B, it is usually painful. And this is where like, we've got to understand the language of their cries and know that yes, just because they're crying doesn't mean they're in distress and that's their way of communicating with you. And it's, it's okay. They should be crying. That's how they communicate. I still cry. I will probably cry for the rest of my life because that is a healthy form of expression and communication. And if we Mm -hmm. are reacting to their behavior by changing their sleep for our own comfort and not for theirs, we got to take a look at that. Mm -hmm. Um, Awesome. Love it. So would that answer one of my questions? One of my questions was, what if it's different on school days than home days? But also I want to dive in a little more to that around not just when we're making the transition for naps, but say like, I, as an infant teacher, it's really hard to have seven or eight, depending on your state's regulations, kiddos napping on their schedules, on the schedules that they like from a sleep pressure standpoint should be on when you have like two teachers in a room and one teacher is usually doing something else. So it's like one to seven or one to eight. First of all, every parent, just take that in for a minute. One (laughs) to seven or one to eight. Even if you have both of them there, like one, two, three, or four all the time, it's, it's insane. Um, So from a quality care standpoint, those ratios should obviously uh, be changing, but Mm -hmm. If they are just getting like 30 minute naps a couple times a day at school, how do you come back from that? Yeah, that's a great question. And I mean, short naps are, are pretty common in a, in a group setting. Um, and I mean, the baby's temperament definitely plays a role here. Um, you know, I was sharing a little bit earlier about my first, uh, who's now 12, and um, she would have never slept in a child care center, never. <laughs> And she also has lower sleep needs and transitioned through naps much earlier than than many of her peers. Um, Whereas my son, who is now seven, um, you know, knock on wood, is still my amazing long sleeper. And he he could sleep sleep anywhere. anywhere. (laughs) Yeah. And and like he, no matter where you are, excuse me, no matter where you are, vacation or whatever, he knows when it's his bedtime and he knows when he's tired, you know, whereas my daughter would have like fought through it and couldn't miss a second of the action. So your baby's temperament definitely plays a role. Mm-hmm. You know, stimulates. Sounds like she got some of your genes, Teresa. No, shush. <laughs> <laughs> That's a topic for another day. <laughs> I am a horrible night owl. I tell all my clients that. <laughs> do as they say, not as they do. Um, <laughs> um, but you know, the baby or your toddler's temperament is definitely going to play a role. You know, how stimulated are they in the environment? Um, are they a kiddo that? If they wake up, they are content, they're quiet, they move around for a few minutes and then they go back to sleep. Or are they a baby or toddler who they're awake and they want the world to know they're awake? Um, So, you know, for teachers in a a group uh, setting, um, realizing that, you know, maybe some babies wake up at the 30 minute mark, but to give them a little bit more time, whereas if other babies wake up and are crying, see if you can do them back to sleep. Um, but I know state regulations come in play here too, um, because in some states, as soon as the child's awake, they have to be taken out of the crib. 
Um, so, you know, I work with families, as I know you do, Alyssa, all across um, the United States and even sometimes in other countries. Um, and it's hard to stay up on every state and country's regulations. So I always encourage parents to ask, you know, what is the state regulation? What is the center's policy? Where can they have some flexibility? Um, you know, if the baby does wake up the 30, 40 minute mark, which again is biologically appropriate, it doesn't necessarily mean the nap is over. But identifying that baby's temperament, do they just need some time and they'll go back to sleep? Or do they need a lot of hands-on soothing and they'll go back to sleep? Or to get back to your question, are they just up? And then if they're just up, okay, let's not stress. It is what it is. Um, but then when we're talking about the sleep pressure building, it's just important to remember that sleep pressure builds upon a wake up. So for daytime sleep, even if you have your baby in a crib or a bed in the dark, um, darkness is a trigger and reinforcement to the circadian rhythm at night, but it does not play a role in daytime sleep. So sleep pressure starts to build, whether it's light or dark. So let's say, for example, I have that seven-month-old baby, and they took nap one two hours after wake up. So they woke up at seven, they nap at nine, and they're up at 9.30. They don't go back to sleep. And my goal of the schedule is for them to take a nap three hours later. So just base that three hours, if possible, off of the actual wake up of 9.30. So even if the nap is shorter in duration, still trying to juggle that piece of sleep pressure can still protect your night. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's totally helpful. Well, hey there, busy mama. Are you looking for ways to make your life easier, your home less chaotic, and at the same time, add more joy to your life? My name is Deanna Yates, and I'm the host of Wanna Be Clutter Free, a podcast all about letting go of the stuff we don't need in our lives so that we can focus on what truly matters. Don't worry, I'm not going to tell you to throw it all away or make you feel guilty about keeping something you love, no matter how many other people don't quite understand it. But I will give you practical and more importantly, actionable advice so that you can make progress right away. And you won't just hear it from me. There are amazing guests too. It's like having your bestie in your pocket, telling you it's okay to let go of the things that are not serving you and your family in a totally non-judgmental way. So join me over on the podcast where we can work on progress over perfection for those of us that want to be clutter-free. Are you overwhelmed by the things that get in the way of you doing what you want to do? Are you looking for ways to simplify life to better align with your values? Do you want to create space in your schedule so you have room for more of the good stuff? Play, joy, relationships, gratitude, and more? If you answered yes to any of these questions, I invite you to check out Edit Your Life, a podcast to help you edit the unnecessary from your life so you have more room to enjoy the awesome. Through episodes with me, Christine Co, and a range of super smart, compassionate, and thoughtful guests, you'll come away with big picture insights and practical ways to declutter your home, schedule, and mental space without getting bogged down by perfection. I have always believed that small moments and actions matter tremendously. My goal is to help you find agency and space in your life through doable baby steps that will leave you feeling accomplished instead of overwhelmed. Check out Edit Your Life wherever you enjoy your podcasts. And interesting because I, for nap at school, would always drop the shades. And when I wanted to wake them up, I'd pull up the shades. And so... Mm-hmm had always felt like nap light did play a role in sleep but are you saying that it doesn't play a role in like inducing sleep 
so it's so light doesn't play a role in daytime sleep from a biological perspective. So the reason light and dark are significant for nighttime sleep is because the circadian rhythm uh, releases a hormone called melatonin. Um, but melatonin all, only plays a role in nighttime sleep. So during the day, we don't have that hormone working in our favor. Uh, so biologically, light and dark doesn't really reinforce the onset or the consolidation of sleep. Behaviorally, mm -hmm. it can definitely be. Um, so again, going back to your baby's temperament, if you have a baby who's easily stimulated and distracted and they're napping with a lot of lights on, then if they wake up at 30 minutes, they might be playing with, you know, their hands or they might be, right. you know, looking at something out the window. Um, so that's where light and dark can be helpful for naps from a behavioral right. perspective. Um, just it doesn't sense. have that biological component. Makes total sense. I also think of it as like a behavioral cue, right? Like when lights are out, it's nap time. When lights are on, it's not, mm -hmm. right? So they can get used right. to that. Um, and for childcare educators out there, one of my favorite things in the whole wide world, and I think the greatest gift to childcare educators is uh, cribs on wheels, because we, yeah. you can then like put a kid down in the crib and let, and like gently rock them to sleep. And you can do two at a time, which means you can put two kids down at a time. And at that, like, if they're waking up at 30 minutes, we would spend every September at like the 25 minute mark, I had somebody whose job it was to sit near that crib and just gently yeah. shake it for like 10 minutes to keep them, to pull them into the next sleep cycle for our kiddos who were waking up consistently at 30 minutes. And yeah. you don't have to do it for yeah. life, but they have to get into that, into that rhythm and routine. And yeah. most cribs at home aren't on wheels. So you probably yeah. can't tag team them, but uh, it is a gift <laughs> to childcare teachers. Yeah. Uh, Awesome. So how long do you recommend keeping that one nap? Mm. Yeah, so I think there's a lot of uh, confusion and misconception around, you know, naps. Daytime sleep is very different than nighttime sleep in terms of what it actually offers our body. Um, and you don't want daytime sleep to take away from nighttime sleep because that restorative sleep is very important for, you know, various reasons. Um, but there are recent research studies that show that naps play a significant role in things like emotional regulation, um, memory formation, language acquisition, a lot of cognitive development, um, and a lot of toddlers and preschoolers who stop napping too soon, um, you'll often see some of these behavioral and emotional concerns. Um, a little bit more present uh, than their peers who are still napping. So, you know, in the case of the childcare that we were talking earlier, where maybe the preschoolers nap is starting at one um, and the parents are really struggling at night, um, just removing that nap may not be the, the solution. Um, so talking with the providers or any way to pull the nap earlier, very likely they're going to say no. Uh, <laughs> Send so them our way. Yeah. <laughs> so then we're going to have to look at, you know, being creative, um, you know, can they shorten the nap, you know, maybe mm -hmm. a nap still, but a shorter nap so they can rebuild more sleep pressure before bed. Um, very rarely would I recommend dropping a nap before two and a half. Um, and for most kids, research shows they still really need a nap until three. Um, some research shows even four or five-year-olds need a nap. Mm -hmm. um, and I work with a lot of kids in kindergarten. You know, with the transition to kindergarten, emotionally and cognitively is quite a significant one. Um, and sometimes kids who even weren't napping in preschool suddenly start to need a nap in kindergarten again, just because of the demands of kindergarten and potentially waking up earlier in the morning to get to school. Um, so sometimes even five, six-year-olds are taking a nap 
Um, now, when I say nap, it might just be 20, 40 minutes. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily going to be the two, three hour nap of a younger toddler, um, but a shorter nap uh, that can be very beneficial even for kids as up to six or seven. Yeah, I think that's that's hugely helpful. And like you said, it's going to be different kid to kid, even like my twin niece and nephew. Spencer mm-hmm. napped way longer than Emerson did. She didn't need it anymore, but she was offered rest time for that exact reason of emotional regulation. When our kiddos are going, going, going from a sensory perspective, everyone who's listening to this has heard me talk about the triangle of growth, the little thing I made up. But uh, like, I believe that emotional development, sensory processing and language development all work in Mm -hmm. a triangle. And that is all that I'm focused on for kids when I'm assessing development um, in like birth to five. And it's really hard for a sensory system to regulate mm-hmm. with no downtime when it because mm-hmm. we get overstimulated and then it's really hard to emotionally regulate. And Absolutely. so I think even if a kid isn't sleeping, having rest time is huge. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's a great question. And you know, I do get that a lot because um, naturally, somewhere between two and a half and four, you know, most kids are going to start to change their nap pattern. And naps get shorter. Um, a lot of kids in that age range no longer need a daily nap, but still, what I refer to as a regular nap, like a couple times a, a week. Um, but just as you said, Alyssa, offering that quiet time. So parents will often say, "Well, how do I reinforce that?" And you know, that's probably a topic for another day as well. Mm-hmm. With you know, setting boundaries and and you know, really helping your child understand expectations and mm-hmm. um, helping them transition to something new. Um, but typically I'll say, um, you know, give your toddler preschooler 45 minutes. Um, mm-hmm. If they fall asleep within that 45 minutes, great. It's a nap day. If not, and they're content resting, then let them still rest. Mm-hmm. Um, if you get to the end of the 45 minutes and rest time isn't going well and, um, you know, it's causing everybody stress in the house, then rest time is over. But keeping that rest time consistent in the routine for all the reasons you just mentioned is really valuable. Yeah, I love that. And I want to note that rest time is a, is a screen-free time, again, from a sensory yes. perspective. They're like, 100%. we would have nap bags that had maybe quiet toys or even like crayons mm-hmm. and paper, things like that that they mm-hmm. could do, but that's screen-free. Yeah, um, good point. Cool. One of the things that was brought up was what happens when my kid falls asleep on the way home. This mom picks her kids up at three from school. And she was like, without fail, my, I think it's five or six year old will fall asleep on the drive home. And now like, isn't ready for bedtime. What do I do? Yeah. Yeah. That's fun. (laughs) And I've been there. I've been there. Um, So my son's seven now in his second grade, but he had a really hard transition to kindergarten and it was full AK and he was falling asleep like every day after school. It wasn't fun. Um, So first thing you're driving, please focus on driving. (laughs) Your kid is sleeping in the car. Like parents will ask me sometimes, well, should I be trying to distract them? And safety first, safety first when we're, we're driving. So if they fall asleep in the car, they fall asleep in the car. Probably, however, you're going to want to wake them up when you get home. They are not going to be happy about being woken up. They're probably going to cry. This goes back to what you were talking about earlier, Alyssa, was supporting the cry, um, distinguishing, you know, is it a distress cry? Is it a protest cry? Like, what is going on? Um, but also, uh, in particular, for what you're asking about with the five-year-olds, often the reason they're crashing and then really angry and emotional is related more to hunger and hydration 
than just sleep. Um, so a lot of kids at this time, their blood pressure is dipping and they desperately need a protein-based snack. Um, so if you're waking them up, um, lots of light, um, that way you're cueing to their body um, to not start releasing melatonin too early in the evening um, and offer a snack, lots of water, um, looking at the sensory input of the day, you know, is this kiddo's behavior sensory seeking because they didn't have enough of it? Um, is it sensory avoiding because they're overstimulated? This goes back to knowing your kid and their temperament and you know their needs. Um, but a lot of times that crash isn't solely sleep driven. It might be nutrition, it might be activity. Um, but one thing I want to mention that is related to this, um, in the winter, it's really hard on commutes home because for most of us, depending on where you live, I'm sure some people are listening to you from all over, but for many of us, you know, the winter months, it's getting dark at 4, 4.30. So if you're driving home and it's dark and your kid's in a car and they're the type of kid who falls asleep in that motion, it doesn't help that it's dark outside. Now in the winter with the loss of natural light, um, even for adults, we tend to get a little bit more lethargic um, and our circadian rhythm gets a little confused because we start to release melatonin too soon before we're actually ready to go to sleep. Um, so in the winter months especially, it is so important to keep your home with a lot of light on up until 30 minutes before bed. Um, in the other seasons, it's easier to do this just with natural light and getting outside. Um, but if you're in a dark home at four or five, six o'clock, and a lot of people are thinking, you know, my bedtime routine needs to be really quiet and really dark, um, but too much darkness before the actual target bedtime can be harmful. So if they fell asleep in the car or they fell asleep on the couch when you get home, wake them as soon as you can, lots of light, look at nutrition, look at hydration, uh, look at activity. I love it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank sure. you. So last thing I want to kind of go through is the actual, we kind of chatted about how long it could take for this nap time transi transition, but let's talk through like what it looks like to go from two to one. So on a sample nap schedule, just kind of like, what does that, how do you actually put it into play? We'll, we'll again, mm -hmm. use two to one naps. Yeah, there's a couple of different ways it could, it could work out. So some kids, you might start to notice that nap one just gets longer. So if they're in the 12 to 18 month range, maybe they were pretty consistently taking an hour to an hour and a half nap, but you're starting to know that notice that it's going longer, allow it to go longer. So sometimes we'll notice the first nap gets so long that they refuse nap two, or there's no longer room for nap two. That might be one way that the transition starts to happen. Um, for other kids, you may start to notice that you go to put them down for the first nap and you try for an hour and they just are not falling asleep. <laughs> so that's another indicator uh, to start working on um, a single nap. And then for a third group of kids, they might still be taking those two naps, but then again, not falling asleep within 20 minutes at that time or waking a lot overnight again. Um, so whenever one of those scenarios starts to happen, um, you wanna now depending on your toddler's age, start to aim for the single nap, if possible, uh, to happen four and a half to five and a half hours after wake up. As you were saying that, I like just pictured this human who I had in my classroom, and I can picture her popping <laughs> up in her crib and saying, I awake. <laughs> and it was when we were to down for her morning nap and she was ready to move. Yeah. And I, oh man, yeah. flashbacks. <laughs> Which is really hard when she's the only one in your classroom and that used to be your morning coffee time. <laughs> Now it isn't. Yeah. Uh, 
but so in that <laughs> scenario, what we would do with her, she was just straight up refusing that morning nap. We would had to, it was like trial and error essentially to figure out like where was she from a sleep pressure standpoint to figure out where mm -hmm. at what point was she ready to go down our target at school was always around 11 11 30 for that one nap once we could get there but you can't mm -hmm. always jump from 9 a.m to 11 30 and so it's yeah. gonna be like some trial and error and piecing this together and maybe a little cat nap later as you make that transition yeah. my advice to whether it's teachers in this, uh, caregivers, parents, is to really just pay attention to sleep pressure and make sure more importantly than the length of the nap is how long is the awake period around the nap, whether it's before or after. Absolutely. And, and as you're navigating those situations, again, you might have some days where they take the morning nap and not nap too. You might have some days where they take a single nap. You might have some days where they don't nap at all. <laughs> so, as <laughs> Good luck. so as you're navigating these situations, um, it, bedtime needs to range more than 30 minutes day to day. That's okay. Just make sure you keep your wake time in the morning consistent. So if they go to bed later tonight than normal, don't let them sleep in tomorrow. Because as soon as the circadian rhythm gets unregulated in the morning, all bets are off. <laughs> and everything's going to get a little haphazard. And it is much easier to adjust the circadian rhythm at night than it is in the morning. Uh, so many of my clients struggle with early wake-ups. And during nap transitions, it is unfortunately easy to get into an early wake-up pattern. And it is much, much harder to get out of it. Yeah. No, I love that. It is tempting me like, Ooh, I can just pull them into bed and we can both sleep until eight because we were up last night or whatever. Um, but yeah, no, that's such a, such a key point of advice. Thanks. Awesome. Teresa, where can people connect with you if they would love to seek out your services or want more information? And if you want to also give an overview of like the services you provide. Yeah, thanks, Melissa, for asking. Um, so I operate online and over the phone via a conference call system, so I can support families uh, from anywhere. I uh, regularly work with families all over the United States and Canada, sometimes even Europe. Had a couple Australian clients before, had a couple uh, clients from Japan. Um, time zone changes are always a little tricky to schedule, but we make it work. And, uh, you know, as Alyssa outed me earlier, I am a night owl, so <laughs> that tends to work well with countries in Europe and Asia. Um, <laughs> uh, but my website is uh, Stuart, which is my last name, S-T-E-W-A-R-T, uh, Stuart Family Solutions, uh, dot com. Uh, you can also find me on Facebook if you look for Teresa Stewart Family Solutions. Um, I do run online workshops uh, pretty regularly. I have a prenatal sleep workshop, um, newborn sleep, infant sleep, which is 6 to 15 months old, toddler sleep, uh, which is 16 to 36 months old, preschool sleep, which is two and a half to five. Um, I'm launching in a couple weeks childhood sleep, uh, ages 6 to 12. Um, and then I don't have a group yet for adolescent sleep, but um, it is something that I've been doing more lecturing and education on uh, for adolescents, specifically around school start times, because uh, unfortunately schools start way too early for the sleep needs of our preteens and teens. Um, but yeah, either on my Facebook page or on my website. Uh, for clients who live in the greater Boston area, um, I do also offer uh, in-person workshops. Um, I actually have one coming up next week in a local town, Wellesley, that a group of moms organized, and I look forward to that. Um, and then again, I can do the one-on-one -on -one consulting uh, over Zoom. 
That's awesome. And I have been to her workshops and highly recommend them. Um, <laughs> have ever presented conferences and all the things. So yeah, no, for sure. Thank you so much for sharing your brain and your time with us, Teresa. I'm yeah. so grateful to know you. Uh, me too, Lisa. And happy to come back and talk about any topic that you want at any time. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in to Voices of Your Village. Check out the show notes for this episode and all past episodes at voicesofyourvillage.com. Did you know that we have a special community for all of you to be a part of so that we can all gather together to raise emotionally intelligent humans? Head on over to Facebook, search Seed and Sow colon Voices of Your Village and dive into that Facebook group. We cannot wait to hang out with you and collaborate on raising these tiny humans. If you're digging this podcast, head on over to Apple Podcasts, scroll down, click those stars and leave a review. It really fills my heart to hear from all of you. I'm Margaret. And I'm Amy. And together we host the podcast, What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood. Margaret, I would say you're sort of a where are my keys kind of mom. Correct. Sometimes a where are my kids kind of mom. <laughs> well, you're Amy more of a we were supposed to leave 35 seconds ago, mom. I mean, touche. In each episode of What Fresh Hell, we come at a topic from our usually completely opposite perspectives. I bring the research. And I bring kind of the gimlet eye. Like, is that research really going to work, people? And almost 10 million downloads later, we're still laughing. We also talk to experts in the parenting field, plus parents with stories we can all learn from. We make each other laugh, we challenge each other's assumptions, and we have what we think is the best parenting community on the internet. Check out What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood wherever you listen to podcasts.